back to Much Language, Such Talk. Today, you're listening to me, Corrine, and my amazing co-host, Ava Maria. Hello. Today, we're talking with Professor Ellen Bialystok about how bilingualism affects you throughout your life. Professor Ellen Bialystok is a distinguished research professor of psychology and Walter Gordon Research Chair of Lifespan Cognitive Development at York University in Canada and an associate scientist at the Rotman Research Institute of the Baycrest Center for Geriatric Care. Her research uses a range of techniques and methods to help us understand the effects of bilingualism on cognitive processes across the lifespan. Her research has uncovered ways to identify differences in the development of essential cognitive and language abilities for bilingual children and the postponement of symptoms of dementia in bilingual older adults. Ellen has received several awards for her groundbreaking research, such as the Dean's Award for Outstanding Research, the Donald T. Stuss Award for Research Excellence, the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science Heb Award, the Killam Prize for the Social Sciences, and the York University President's Research Award of Merit. Additionally, in 2017, she was granted an honorary doctorate from the University of Oslo for her contributions to language research. Many of us at MLST have been following Ellen's research for a long time. Among her extensive list of journal publications, books, and awards, Ellen has been named an Officer of the Order of Canada for her contributions to her understanding of the cognitive benefits of bilingualism and for opening up new avenues of her research in her field. And she is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. We invited Ellen to talk about her research in anticipation of the Bilingualism Matters Research Symposium on the 25th and 26th of October, 2021, at which Ellen is giving a plenary talk. If you're interested in attending this academic conference, registration is still open and you can find a link to register on the Bilingualism Matters website in the episode description. Hi, Ellen. How are you? Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for being on the episode. Honestly, this is so exciting for both of us. Like we, when we saw your response, it made us so excited. I think we were actually together at the time and just started like cheering. It was great. <laughs> so thank you so much. Are you ready to just jump right in? Let's do it. So how did you develop your interest in language and linguistics? Well, I guess it started when I was an undergraduate student more than 50 years ago. So this goes back some time. I was an undergraduate studying psychology, and I was um, drawn to developmental psychology. There were a lot of sort of sexual stereotypes at that time about who could study what. So I liked science, but girls couldn't actually do physics and chemistry, so I ended up in psychology. And once you're in psychology, girls gravitated to the sort of developmental side. So that's how I got interested in developmental psychology. But once that became an interest of mine, I always thought that the most, by far, the most interesting part about development, the most interesting thing that little kids do is learn language. I, I thought this, this bar none is the most astounding development. The problem is that if you look at the research on child language acquisition in the late 60s and early 70s, there wasn't a lot there. So although I thought this was an incredibly interesting problem, it didn't have a lot of pillars. It didn't have a lot of foundation. So I was always drawn to those kinds of questions and that area. So from that, you know, once you are looking at how children learn language, it explodes into everything else about language that becomes relevant. Yeah, I, I actually think I kind of had a little bit of a similar 
root myself, my undergraduate degree was in psychology. I originally wanted to be a language interpreter, so I guess I kind of had a little bit of that. But since I once I got into my psychology degree, is a lot of developmental psychology and like abnormal psychology and child development and all of that. And suddenly I was just like, this should it, it feels almost when you start learning about how we learn language, it's just like how where where does it come from? It almost feels like it shouldn't exactly. happen, but we we are just so good at it. So that's that's really amazing. But I think, you know, you're actually onto something because, as I said, there were no really good theories about it. So what did Chomsky, the only linguist of record, have to say about it? He said, it's just too hard to understand how kids could possibly learn this. Therefore, they must already know it. That's where the most important linguistic theory came from, from no idea how we could otherwise explain this. I was actually, when you said that you started almost 50 years ago, that literally means that you were there for all of the major developments that happened in linguistics in those years. And that started with Chomsky, which was around that time, right? So you were there for all of it, which is mind-blowing. It's very impressive. Well, Chomsky used to come. I was a student at University of Toronto, and Chomsky used to come every year or so and give a talk, and I would listen to him. Yeah, it was uh, really interesting when I was an undergrad reading a lot of like Chomsky and Steven Pinker and all of that about the innateness of language and all of that. And of course, like, we're just like, well, you know, we could always, and then we're like, oh no, the things that we could do to find out about these innate innate aspects of human language, we really can't do ethically in research. So we just have to, you know, try and figure these out. And I think uh, you've done an amazing job with it and where research is going now, we are we're figuring out a lot. Even It might look like it's oh, yeah. moving slowly, but yeah, we've figured no, no, out no. quite a lot. The progress has been astounding. I mean, we understand so much about the mind, the brain, the relation between language and thought and all of this stuff. Uh, there has been tremendous progress and the theories uh, evolve and become more interesting. For sure. I, I think that's most likely, if it's the same reason for you, why you got into language research as well. It's just... It's so fascinating, honestly. And there's just so much to look at as well. Um, speaking of our research specifically, we, were, we both are bilingual researchers as well. And so we were wondering, what is the most fascinating or most fascinating things about the bilingual brain to you? I think the most interesting thing about the brain that we've learned quite recently is how plastic it is. And that, that was a whole revelation. I mean, until certainly 20 years ago, but maybe even more recently, nobody would believe anything that crazy. But what the bilingual brain does in particular is seamlessly adapt to more than one language because it's plastic. So it's the adaptation of the brain to the linguistic environment that I find to be the most astounding thing. And what's incredible is that this adaptation is seen in the first year of life, in pre-verbal infants in bilingual environments. Their little brains are working differently. They're adjusting to the language in their environment in ways that are completely astounding, I think, and, and would not have really been believed 20 years ago. So that to me is the most incredible thing about the brain, that it is massively plastic and the bilingual brain takes advantage of that plasticity to adapt and adjust to the kind of environment necessary to function. Yeah, 
That is that is fascinating. I think we can all agree. Yeah, it really is. I just want to backtrack really quickly. If you have not heard about the idea of your brain being plastic or the more technical term neuroplasticity, this is the idea that your brain can grow and change to, as Ellen was saying, to adapt to its environment. Sometimes this can be due to brain trauma, but sometimes it can just be the exposure that you're in as well. And this is such a revolutionary idea that your brain can regrow or change and yeah, I remember the first time I read a paper about that, I was just like, how can it do that? It is really cool. Yes, that is. Wasn't, wasn't one of the first um, very prominent studies about this, the um, study about the taxi drivers in London, where oh, their, yes. their brains literally grew with the knowledge they gained because they had more gray matter. And that when I read that, I was just blown away. So I want to talk about that because what happens in science is that studies that have a very dramatic finding inevitably become sound bites. And that, that study, uh, the t- London taxi driver study, is a sound bite that people will explain more or less as you did. But what they actually found is, uh, is more complex and I believe more interesting. What the the study actually showed is that the part of the brain uh, where spatial memory and spatial navigation takes place is in the hippocampus, which is right in the middle of the brain. It's subcortical, so it's deep in the brain. Uh, And the hippocampus is essential to memory. And it's a complex structure that looks like a seahorse, hence hippocampus. But what People are now learning about the hippocampus is that it isn't one thing. Like your liver is one thing. You can slice out any piece of your liver and it's precisely the same as any other piece of your liver. That's not true for the hippocampus. So what they actually found in the taxi driver study was that compared to the control group, the taxi drivers had enlarged regions in one side of the hippocampus, but smaller mass in a different part of the hippocampus. So it adapted. It isn't just that it grew, much more subtle. And this is the point about neuroplasticity, that the adaptation is very precise. It's very specific. So the differences between the taxi driver uh, hippocampi and the control group hippocampi was not in overall total volume. It was in the distribution of volume so that it could be the most effective and adaptive uh, source of what these people did every day. For their job. Very specific. Yeah. yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah, And you also have to think about how that's not something that they were born with then. I mean, it is possible that they were slightly better at spatial reasoning or something like that as they were younger or when they were first born or whatever. But most likely due to their profession, well, because of their profession, this is why this adaptation happened. That is really interesting. Yeah, I think, I'm trying to think throughout most of my career, I think I've always thought that it was just like gray matter or had, or white matter. Sorry, I can't remember the colors of matter of the brain anymore. Oh no. Um, yeah, it had just grown more. So thank you for correcting us. That's honestly, yeah, that is significantly more interesting as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I will uh, update how I uh, elaborate on different studies then. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. But you kind of already hinted on, um, 
bilingualism, right? So um, you are one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer in cognitive research into bilingualism. What kind of sparked your interest into looking at that specifically? Well, to go back to why I got interested in language, it was the next step. What was most interesting about language was the connection between language and thought. Uh, that w- that always fascinated me. That was always my, you know, biggest question. How do language and thought connect up? And all these simplistic forms that kids would ask, can you think without words? You know, is is thinking just speaking? All of this stuff, I really thought a lot about those questions. So the relation between language and thought was really the basis for all my graduate student work. You know, everything I did as a graduate student. And that's really how I moved from sort of the standard view of that question into bilingualism. There are a few other little steps along the way that, um, you know, connected me to the field of second language acquisition, uh, most notably a recession that meant I couldn't get a job. So, you know, you did other things. But that, that's how it happened. So I would trace my interest in bilingualism to my long-standing interest in uh, the question on the relation between language and thought. So that's how I moved into the kinds of questions I ended up studying. Also, yeah, that, that connection, that I think that is so great that you mentioned that. Did a child specifically ask you at some point if you could think without words? Because I, I think you said that, didn't you? Yeah, I said it's a question that I wondered about. It's a really good point. I think, yes, there was recently now people have started to see that there are some people also that when they don't have any visualizations when they think, and it's just like simple things like that. Well, it's just like, obviously, well, yeah, a lot of us who are speaking, we do hear ourselves speak in our head while we're thinking. That is not necessarily the only way, but how are we supposed to know this unless we do the research in it? So that's fascinating. Well, I think one of the really important formulations of the question actually came very early from someone who I don't think has ever given enough credit for his contribution. And again, when he is given credit, it's reduced to a soundbite that's not quite right. And that's Vygotsky. I mean, that was his whole point in Language and Thought of the Child, the little monograph that was published in 1962. That's what he examined. And his solution was interesting. It's probably wrong, but it was incredibly interesting that thought develops on one stream and language develops on one stream. And at some point, at around two years old, they kind of come together for the child. And what Vygotsky says is thought becomes verbal and language becomes meaningful because they come together. So I, you know, I think he he had really interesting things to say about the question. That's an interesting approach as well, yeah. So in your academic career, you did a lot of language research on different populations, right? Children and adults, as well as healthy and impaired populations. And we were wondering uh, what the journey was like to develop these kind of projects and research questions. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, first, we don't really study language very much anymore. Uh, We study cognition. So we're not using a lot of, although, I mean, that's kind of unfair. We do study language, but mostly we study cognition. And the methods are incredibly diverse because as 
the research questions have expanded, we've had to develop new ways of thinking about it. So, for example, up until around the end of the 1990s, all of my research was with children. Most of it uh, was using language as outcome measures and some cognitive tasks. So that research was based on pretty standard methodologies in developmental psychology, where you, you know, give children various kinds of tests, sometimes they're standardized and so on. But that's very mainstream. But in around 2000, I was fortunate to receive a fellowship that gave me two years uh, leave. And the reason I wanted the fellowship was because I had been studying the consequences of bilingualism for a, a long time at that point, like almost 20 years already at that point. And I, you know, found whatever I found. And we found that bilingual children do these things better, but not those things better. But it kind of reached a dead end because the kinds of things that bilingual children were doing better, the kinds of cognitive tasks we gave them that bilingual children were doing better were things that if you sit back and wait six months or a year, all the children were going to do them anyway. So did it really matter? Was there anything more enduring here? Because really, what's the rush? The more important question was whether there was anything about bilingual experience that had a more enduring effect on cognition. So the purpose of this fellowship I had was to design, create, establish a methodology to translate that research for adults. So that's what I did. And then I was very fortunate because I got to work with a wonderful group of people and we developed techniques for looking at this research. And out of the early days of these kinds of developments, uh, we made some interesting discoveries. So, for example, in 2004, we published the first paper showing that on executive function tasks, we could find better performance by bilingual adults and older adults than monolingual counterparts. This had never been shown before. So something about cognition not only changed, but lasted throughout the lifetime. Now, I mean, looking back 20 years later, there were lots of problems with that study, but it did, it was able to give us this piece of information that was brand new. And, and of course, it's been replicated many times, but it also has not been replicated. And that's because what we understand now is that these concepts are way more complex than we thought then. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I feel like that study was so influential. Uh, what was the full impact on your academic journey in, and in the field? So we published that paper in 2004. It made a huge splash and it did a number of things. Uh, one is it led to a lot of other labs trying to adapt the method we had created and do their own studies. And as I say, sometimes they replicated our findings, sometimes they didn't. That's not the point. The point is it became an active area of research, and you need a lot of people with a lot of different approaches to get it right because it is so complex. So that's one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is that it got enormous attention in the press. And I was doing like 30 interviews a day with media 
But that led to something incredible. So I'm talking to, I must have spoken to 300 science writers. Now, science writers are very smart people. Most of them have PhDs and they've chosen communication instead of research. So they really are smart people. And every single one, every single one without exception, asked me the same question. And the question was, so I see that in your older adult sample in this study, the bilinguals did better than the monolinguals, but um, what about dementia? And so for 300 interviews, I'd say, no idea. We only looked at healthy older adults. Why would bilingualism affect dementia? It's kind of a crazy idea. No idea. But when 100% of a large group of smart people ask you the same question, you have to take the question seriously. And so that's what we did. And that led to our next big breakthrough. So we thought, ah, first of all, why would bilingualism affect dementia? Dementia starts in the hippocampus in the medial temporal lobe, and it's a memory disorder. We had no evidence that bilingualism impacts memory. So there shouldn't be any effect. But all right, you know, let's amuse those 300 science writers. And so the study was just very simple. Well, it was hard to do, but it was a very simple idea. I was working in a memory clinic in a geriatric hospital, and all we did is look through records. Uh, we had whatever information was provided in the intake interview. We had the physician's notes. We had the diagnoses. And the very simple question was, is there any difference in the onset of diagnosis of dementia in patients who come in who are monolingual or bilingual. And the astounding finding is that there is. And that's really been replicated a lot. I mean, that one has been replicated all over the world. So that was pretty astounding. And you can see the, the point here is that questions lead to the next question. You don't set out in advance what you believe are all of the important issues. They evolve dynamically from where you are. 100%. I also really like that at the beginning, you were talking about how you ran these studies 20 years ago and how you found that there, there are definitely problems with it, but you adapt and all these things. And I think, especially in this time of science understanding and research and everything, it's important to recognize that research is ever changing and it, we're always being reflective on it. So while something that like in that moment, you were like, well, why? Well, of course we didn't look at it because that's not what we're thinking of, but you're just like, well, now we can. We have another basis. So it's a good, now we have a good point of comparison. Yeah. I wanted to point that out as well, because I really like when um, people acknowledge that science has evolved and that it should evolve. Because if you work on something for 20, 25 years and you do not change your opinion, you're probably doing something wrong because there's always got a new findings and new outcomes and new research questions that will either, you know, um, advance our understanding or maybe even prove a different point. But um, I, yeah, I really like that you pointed that out because I think a lot of people don't even consider that. Yeah. Perfect. So um, you already kind of mentioned um, what populations you looked at. You looked at um, children and you mentioned that, you know, that you found very early on that some bilingual children maybe perform better on different tests than monolingual children. Now you mentioned, of course, that dementia has an, uh, bilingualism has an effect on dementia. Some people, of course, call this the bilingual advantage, which is debated, of course, um, controversial term. but um, 
So, yeah, for example, it's been found that, um, like you mentioned already, executive functions like inhibitory control or attention switching, for example, um, have been suggested to be better in those who speak multiple languages than those who do not, right? Um, but first of all, maybe we can elaborate the term bilingual advantage. What what does that even mean? And um, can you maybe give us a, a brief, I mean, you've been doing research for such a long time that it might not be easy to give a brief overview, but can you give an overview from what your research team has found? I can, yes. So first, let's talk about this term. I never use it. I never use it. I think it is the biggest part of the problem in the field uh, for several reasons. Um, but the main one is that once you give something a name, it is a thing. And a thing exists or it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, then it's wrong. It just doesn't exist. So you take this incredibly complex set of ideas and experiences and abilities, you give it a label, and then you say, let's see if we can find it. Is it under the table? Is it behind the curtain? Nope, not there. I did an experiment. I really looked for it, and it wasn't there. Therefore, it doesn't exist. And that's where this so-called debate has come. Even calling it a debate is wrong. When researchers say, I couldn't find it, they don't say, here's another idea about why I didn't find it, or here's another suggestion about what those other results might mean. No, radio silence. All they say is, nope, doesn't exist. So simplifying complex ideas and then putting a label on them and treating it as a problem of hide-and-go-seek does no service to science. And unfortunately, that is where we are. Right. And not just amongst researchers, but also how we communicate research to the general public, right? So they might think it's a black and white thing where it definitely isn't, right? Yeah. There's this whole replicability crisis in psychology, which kind of lends itself to this a little bit. Um, but at the same time, it, it is really interesting how you could see studies that run the same types of methods have different outcomes. And I think that you mentioned this before, how especially with bilingual children, sometimes bilingual children have an advantage six months earlier and then six months later, the children catch up. So it could just be something like it is this timeline. But yeah, it is so I guess it can be very confusing to look at the research to see how conflicting both sides can be. Um, on, is it an advantage or is it just something that happens? Is it just the difference? So, but yeah, it is this term that we've created and we do repeat it quite a lot. Yeah. So I, I want to comment on the second part of your question. Um, if we can move past the first question and assume that something is different in bilingual minds, what is it that's different? And here, too, I think a lot of the problem and confusion is because the majority of the research, including my early research, I am as guilty, maybe I'm more guilty about this than most people because I think I introduced it to the field. It turns out to be totally wrong. And that is to pin all of the, this research onto the executive control framework created by Miyaki. Miyaki is wrong. 
I see no reason to believe that the processes involved in executive functioning can be talked about in terms of three sub-processes that have some autonomy. Although after 2012, he changed it and said, actually two plus a general thing. So wrong. That's not how the mind works. And I think that has really been responsible for derailing a lot of the work. So people say, well, Miyaki says inhibition. This is really important, inhibition, okay? Let's do a study and we'll test inhibition. Here's a test some people say measures inhibition. I'll use it. Nope, nothing there. Well, that's not what inhibition is. So I think that we were really misled and I accept responsibility by over-relying on an appealing but overly simplistic notion of what executive function is. So what is it if it's not that? So my alternative is not very coherent. It's kind of vague, but it has to do with selective attention, the ability to control the focus of attention under different conditions. And this includes focusing on the language you're speaking and avoiding intrusions from the language you're not speaking. It includes focusing on the position of the the square and not the color or the other way around. It includes focusing on the color of the word and not the name of the color in all of these things. They all involve focus on this and not that. And it's hard to characterize that ability in very clear ways, but I think that's what it is. I think that's what bilingualism does, beginning in infancy. And the reason is that even pre-verbal infants in environments where there is more than there are more than one languages being spoken are living in a more complex auditory environment. Now, we know from amazing infant research that at the moment of birth, they can tell languages apart. They know. So they spend six, seven, eight months way before they speak their first word in a linguistic environment that's more complex than a monolingual children. They're always monitoring and selecting. So that's where I think it starts. And that's the process that I think is at stake. It is part of executive control, absolutely, but it's, I think, better, it's a better fit with general theories of attention than specific theories of executive control. That sounds very, I, I think one of the hardest things I found myself in that whole, you know, attention switching and attention and focusing your attention, all that is picking, as you mentioned, that right task to look at those specific things. Are you using the Stroop task, which you're supposed to say either the color of the word or the word that's spelt out? Is it the end back task where you need to see if shapes or a number or letter matches something, a certain number of other numbers or letters back? Like which one of these is it a selection of all of these? And so like when it comes to research, we have so many things that are disposable, but then we also have to be careful to make sure, are we actually measuring the thing that we're trying to measure? that can be quite hard. Exactly right. Kind of to step a little bit to the side as we're talking about kids again, 
Um, in linguistics and language research, there is this really well-known theory, which is the critical um, period hypothesis. Um, this suggests that it's easier to learn languages generally before you're about 12 to 13 years old, um, and that there's something about these early years of your life that are critical um, for you to fully develop language. So uh, what do you think about this hypothesis in terms of some of the positives of being um, able to speak multiple languages? Is there an age where it's too learn late to learn a new language, or is it only just about creating those fundamentals of language that's important during those early years? The first thing to point out is that the critical period hypothesis is a very specific and technical set of ideas about opportunities for learning. Um, and, you know, everybody knows it started with, you know, little baby geese and all this sort of stuff, where there's a kind of a privileged window where an experience has to take place to guarantee the outcome. That's what it comes from. And it's been applied and extended to language learning uh, without paying attention to the technical details. And that's a problem. So you need to separate two things. I'm going to make one binary separation and then I'm going to make another one. The first is if we're talking about learning a second language, is there a critical period for learning a second language? And there's a bunch of literature and people say, yes, absolutely. And that critical period is at seven years old or 15 years old or 12 years old. Everybody's got a different story. Well, this is a very technical matter. And to demonstrate that your data is explained by a critical period, you have to be able to say when it closes. It's essential. And if you can't say that, it's not a critical period. What it is, is indisputable evidence of age-related differences in learning. But everything is age-related. So older and older is worser and worser. And it's true for learning a language. It's true for everything. So what we really have is age-related differences in the ability to learn a second language, and for all kinds of reasons. But this notion that there is a privileged period in which a second language will be successfully and seamlessly learned isn't right. But let's take the technical definition of critical period and apply it to first language acquisition. Here there's a lot of evidence because there's a lot of brain and cognitive developments that need to line up on a biological timetable in order to learn a first language. There are absolutely critical periods for first language acquisition, and they can be documented and studied. And when they're violated, language acquisition is impaired. So it's the overextension of this idea to the broad domain of second language acquisition that I object to. And using that kind of logic, you could say, well, there's a critical period for learning calculus. <laughs> well, there isn't. It's just we lose interest in yeah. trying to understand yeah. calculus. Yeah. I would argue I never had a critical period to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> and you see this in the literature. People, in, there are a group of researchers that are very wedded to this idea of a critical period for second language acquisition. And again, if you're going to use the label, you've got to use it accurately. I 100% agree with you on that. It's If it was true that we had this critical period, then 
people like my father who at 25 learned English, that wouldn't have happened. Ava, you were 20 when you learned Dutch, was it? I mean, Dutch and German are similar, but still it's a different language. Like I, when I moved to Japan, I would have never have learned to be able to communicate with anyone. So clearly, yeah, it first language acquisition, definitely. Second language acquisition, 12s, I don't really know what we why we decide to pick on 12-year-olds, but most likely, you know. Lennonburg. Lennonburg was the one who proposed 12. So, I mean, it, you know, they're all over the place. Johnson and Newport said 15. I think yeah. Pinker said six. I mean, it's yep. really yeah, all yeah. over the place. So, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Leave the kids alone. They're doing fine. <laughs> and it's also, if you actually put a number on it, it's just so discouraging because then people will use it as an excuse. Yes. Right. And and as Green said, you know, the, there's far too many examples of successful language learning at any time for this. I used to argue that if the critical period were, in fact, a biological effect, then there would be no counterexamples. So the counter argument I used to get from defenders, and it's going back 30 years at least, was, well, you think this person really learned the language with high fluency, but if you play the tape slowly and listen carefully, they're not actually perfect. That was the counter argument. As you heard from me trying to do the introduction earlier, clearly I'm flawless when I speak in English, obviously. <laughs> what is perfect language anyway? Yeah. So yeah, that's a whole different story. That is such an interesting thing though to mention about this. This is that whole native speakerism, which I personally don't subscribe to the idea of a native speaker as a label. I end up using it just because it's more generally known, but I, I go with first language, second language in those orders, just because of that idea of, fluency which is a weird thing and it's just like why are we not allowed to make mistakes because we do that normally you listen to anyone who speaks a language as their first language you're gonna make mistakes because surprise surprise we're human that's just what happens i would go further because lately we also avoid using first language second language because order of acquisition doesn't predict dominance or fluency so those labels again i think are too restrictive I would say just chronologically to say it in that way, I would use it that way. But yeah, when it comes to dominance, English wasn't technically my first language. So it does sound really funny for me to say my first language is English when it for a fact wasn't. But dominance wise, yeah, English 100% is my most dominant language. Finnish, which was my first language, is my least dominant language. I'm very bad at it. Please don't ask me things in Finnish. <laughs> so yeah, I agree with you on that. So we've been talking about um, these, you know, cognitive aspects of biological cognitive aspects and how they affect your language. Um, is there a cognitive benefit to learning languages throughout your life and uh, becoming bilingual as an adolescent or an adult? Because we do put so much weight on children, but as an adult, do we benefit from that? Absolutely. And it isn't because it's going to make you bilingual. It probably won't make you bilingual. You'll probably be lucky to muddle through a menu. Um, but th that's not the point. The point is that the most important thing as we age is to maintain stimulating activities for your brain. And learning a language is pretty stimulating. It's hard. Anything that's hard for your brain is good for your brain. So it's the process of engaging in this difficult, stimulating task that has spillover benefits for your brain. That's why everybody should find ways to engage in these hard learning problems later in life. It doesn't have to be learning a language, learn a musical instrument. I mean, it doesn't matter, but 
continued engagement in these kinds of activities is really important for long-term brain health. Definitely. Yeah. I think it, it's this idea that, you know, we work out our bodies. Why don't we work out our minds? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was just wondering, so you, you were mentioning, yes, we're using language in this, in our context right now as that mental workout. Um, is there any evidence that showing maybe more than two languages further de- delays, you know, the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's? Could knowing more languages, like even more, just keep piling them on. Could they have even more cognitive benefits or is it just kind of the process of continuously learning in some kind of way? I tend to stay agnostic on that question. There are people who weigh in on one side or the other, but I think it's a question that's too hard to investigate with properly controlled studies because people who are more multilingual um, also have other things going for them, typically. Um, So it's very hard to just take out the language piece. So I don't really believe it is additionally beneficial. Maybe there's some studies that show better outcomes for more multilingual people, but my position is uh, firmly agnostic. Yeah. Um, For those who are listening, there's this idea of individual differences. It's not an idea. It's 100% true. We are all different people. Um, And depending on your life, anything can change how you learn, how you live your life, the things that happen to you. And yeah, as you're saying, there are so many factors about every single person that it can be really hard to measure what exactly it is that affects what's happening. Put it into simple words. So um, we have one question left. And that would be because you've your research encompassed so many different populations, right? You worked on children, you worked on older adults, you worked on healthy populations and impaired populations. And because we already established that research is always evolving, um, we were wondering what are some of the unanswered outstanding questions uh, that would be interesting to look at uh, into in the future? What is what is yet to be addressed, basically? Okay, I think there's two main outstanding questions, and these come from um, my view that I, I think I've made implicit throughout our conversation, but maybe I'll just say more explicitly. There is no doubt in my mind that bilingualism has consequences for the mind and brain. There's just way too much evidence. There's a lot of evidence that shows no differences between groups. There is essentially no evidence that shows these advantages for monolinguals. So these are real effects, but they're not simple. You can't just put people into two boxes that you label monolingual and bilingual, throw some test at them, and expect, you know... Clear-cut results. Right, clear-cut. So um, accepting that there is something there that we don't yet fully understand... I think the two big issues for the field that are outstanding, for which there's no clear consensus, is what are the conditions? What's the nature of the bilingual experience that is more likely to lead to these adaptations? A lot of people are studying that now. So this is ongoing research, and I think it's one of the priority questions. Figure out what the conditions are. It isn't Bilingualism versus monolingualism as monolithic concepts. That's not right. So let's understand that. And the second issue, which people are also working on, 
that's outstanding is to develop a clearer uh, sense of the mechanism. Uh, how, how do these adaptations take place? What changes in the bilingual mind uh, that is at the base, um, the reason we see performance differences? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good points. Yeah. And very interesting to think about how you can measure those, how you can even test those, right? It's uh, interesting, interesting time in the field, for sure. It is. <laughs> yeah. We've had such a great improvement in technology of the things that we use. But yeah, sometimes we can re be like, well, we can get a grant to run this MRI. And then you're like, well, we could also do it this way. So, Well, you know, actually, I, that, that's a really good point because my view now, I mean, MRI is sexy and expensive. I think you get I think you get better data from EEG Ooh. because we're looking at millisecond by millisecond processing in the mind. And that's what EEG is good for. MRI just says, yep, it's in the brain, you know, and <laughs> I don't think it's the right method necessarily. I mean, it certainly has a role and I use it and so on, but I don't think it's the best method for these questions. I think EEG has much more promise. Okay. Good point. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And remember, guys, if you do an EEG study, you get to wear a fun cap. Oh, yeah. Kareen oh, yeah. has a very good photo of herself wearing an EEG cap. <laughs> it's great. A friend of mine was learning how to use it for the first time. And so I was like, I have nothing to do today. Let's uh, work on this. And so <laughs> she found out very quickly. That, I love this. This is a curse in my life. I have very soft hair. <laughs> humble brag um but it actually made it really difficult for her because she kept trying to move my hair to get the nose closer to my scalp uh, uh -huh. it mm. kept fighting her so she learned how to do it very well that day <laughs> okay well that's everything we have to talk about this has been a great conversation thank you so much also for correcting us whenever we're wrong we love to learn new things i think this is an important thing as a scientist as a researcher as a human being to be you know open and understanding that things change and your one way is not always the right way to think about things. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was, this was brilliant and I learned a lot and I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot as well. So yes. uh, thank you very much for, you know, we know how busy you are. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today while we talked with distinguished professor Ellen Bialystok about her research on the effects of bilingualism on your cognition throughout your life. If you want to learn more about Ellen's groundbreaking research, you can find a link to her university page in the description where you can find more of her research articles. And if you want to attend her plenary talk at the Bilingualism Matters Research Symposium next month, you still have time to register. And that link, once again, is in the description. We have had a wonderful time learning so much, and we hope that you have definitely had your mind blown with this because we definitely have. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Goodbye. Sayonara. Bye. 